0: So let's go to God in prayer. And I would just invite you all just to take a deep breath, unless you have stuff in your mouth, and then uh, be careful. But take a deep breath and center yourselves. Let yourself be in this space at this time. Take a deep kind of cleansing breath that allows you to let go just for the next couple of hours to be together with people that love you, to be surrounded by incurious and wonderful, uh, inquiry and also to, uh, insert ourselves and immerse ourselves in the word of God. We thank you, God, that you've called us to this place, that you provided the desire in the hearts of those for hospitality, for those that have served us so beautifully this morning for those gathered around the tables we know god that each person has a story some stories are in a place of of peace and and calm and other stories are conflicted and struggling but they're all sto- our stories so thank you for welcoming us to this place oh god when we give this day back to you, enlighten our minds, oh God. Let your Holy Spirit breathe life into us so that we might receive this living word. And we pray these things in your name, amen. So, five chapters. And we're gonna do it a little bit differently today than we normally do it. Normally we'll read, and then we'll talk, and then we'll read, and then we'll talk. And what I encouraged you to do was to read before we got here, because I would rather not spend all the time reading with five chapters, but if you didn't read it, don't worry. it's about the plagues, all right? so you're all caught up now, and so don't worry about it if you didn't read it, but if you did read it, I think it will things will start maybe to play uh, uh fall into place and maybe make a little bit more sense even than did before when you were reading it so. If we look at the plagues, like they were a dramatic production in 10 scenes with the nation of Egypt assembled in the theater, sitting and watching what was going on. And each scene, imagine a huge steel wrecking ball that swung from a great height and came in. Each strike, each plague demolished a little bit more of Egyptian power. and and demolish a little bit more of the Egyptian narrative, which we'll get into. So the drama played to a packed house, and by that I mean that this story has been told and retold and retold and retold now for almost 4,000 years. And our Jewish neighbors still tell this story every Passover and still refer to this as do we, their Christian uh, uh, brothers and sisters. So the story continues to unfold and the story continues to have power and pact. When it was over, when all these plagues were over, there was nothing left but a pile of rubble and garbage and corpses. Dun, 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 dun. You see how dramatic that is? This is the drama that we have in the Bible. This is what's so exciting about it. So first of all, what we what the plagues are addressing is there, where there was a myth that that was prevalent in those times. and it was the myth of Egypt's invincibility. They were so advanced and they were building their pyramids and they were conquering other people and they were, you know, and they were doing brain surgery and all the stuff that you read about when you or or watch on Netflix with the Egyptology, you know, uh, specials that they have. But they were also had this sense of of invincibility. Have you ever heard of a civilization having that? They've come and they've gone and we need to remember that. And it was about Pharaoh's sovereignty. So it was the Egyptian myth of invincibility and Pharaoh's sovereignty. And sovereignty means in charge of everything, of all the world. That was a a solid foundation for when it's being raised, R-A-Z-E-D, when it's being brought, leveled, brought to the, the bottom part it's a foundation for Yahweh's sovereignty. So that we're starting with the big, big picture. So at at, um, Moses' dramatic confrontation with the Pharaoh and the consequences for which they lead from the initial petition uh, for the release of the Hebrew people, and we know that the initial petition so that they might worship Yahweh in the wilderness from that initial petition that's compromised and bargained and denied to their ultimate escape from, from Egypt in chapter 14 and 15. The drama focuses on two strong-willed antagonists. Who are those two antagonists? On the one hand, we have, pardon me, Pharaoh. On the one hand, we have Pharaoh. On the other hand, we have Moses. Pharaoh and Moses seem to be our two antagonists, but they're actually not the ones that are the center of the drama. They're simply the embodiment of the struggle. But the real drama to which all else is subordinate is the conflict between the Pharaoh who was seen as the people and himself as the incarnation of Ra, which means he saw himself as God, So the real struggle is between that self presumption of being God and the true God of Israel. So it's really against the human desire for power and the God desire for relationship. It's it's the basic struggle. So not only is the freedom of the Hebrews at stake, but what's really at stake is the crucial question Of who controls history? Does Pharaoh, who's in charge of all these lands as far as he can see, and is the Son of God or the incarnation of God, is he in charge of history or is Yahweh? That's the question that's being asked. So the stage is set for Yahweh's actions. You know, for 400 years, for a little over 400 years, The Hebrew people are at least are silent about God in their midst. So from the end of where Joseph is to this moment in time, there's this silence where they've been enculturated into the culture of the Egyptian culture. And so we kind of forget about their relationship with God. And so, but God is behind the scenes, as we've seen, setting the scene, working towards multiplying the people, setting the scene for the, to move forward with his plan. And what is his basic plan for the Hebrew people? What did he say he would give them? What was his promise? Yeah. Progeny, people and land, right? He would give them as far as the star, eye could see, the stars in the sky and whatever. Then along comes this Egyptian experience where all of a sudden, Pharaoh steps in to stop God's plan by killing all of the uh, males so stops creation in the sense of God's plan. So the stage is set for Yahweh's actions, which only alone can break, not beak, as you see in uh, (laughs) in your notes, but which alone can break the Pharaoh's stubborn will. When the enslaved Israelites sought to leave Egypt, Pharaoh said what? No you can't leave. And the Lord then sent 10 plagues to the Egyptians until finally Pharaoh permanently releases them. Finally after even even after the 10th one. And the last of the plagues being the slaying of the firstborn males of Egypt. So some of the plagues are the type of disasters that reoccur often in human history. Some of these plagues are the hailstorms and the locusts. Those seem, we see those in our own country, don't we? Well, I mean, you've seen YouTube videos of hail coming down and breaking windows and all this kind of stuff. Maybe you've seen it yourself. We've seen locusts. I grew up in Imperial Valley where we had the plague of the locusts every seven years. And it was uh, absolutely horrible. And therefore, these things seem possible and realistic. But then other less realistic border on the, what they call the Torah comic, not something we belly laugh over, but something that's irony or uh, a wry humor. It's frogs and gnats and lice and stinkiness. And then there's others that seem very surrealistic. And, and because of are so intensely dark, and that is blood, and darkness and death, and which are highly improbable. So we have some that seem probable and some that seem improbable. The way I'd like for us to look at the plagues today is I'd like first of all to talk just for a minute about ancient biblical numerology, because it has a, there's a point to that. And it's particularly the number 10. I'd like to talk about how the plagues are a response to the Egyptian gods. I'd like to talk a little bit about how the plagues are an undoing of creation to take the world, their world at that point, into a pre-creation state. I'd like to talk to you about how these plagues actually, what they do is they create this scenario of Moses being ready to be the leader that we don't even recognize from the burning bush and from before that but now he's a leader that is able to will he be able will he be able to stand up to pharaoh and will he deliver what god has told him to deliver and then the people follow him out of egypt and to the promised land so moses is set up and this is a te- this is a testing ground and a, a evolution of moses as well and then the final point that I want to talk to you about, but I'd like to present it here because I think it's so important, is that when we talk about God as sovereign, and you're going to hear that word a lot, sovereign, because that is the one who controls history the one who controls the past, the present, the future, all things, God is sovereign. And in those times, in the biblical times, you know, they had many gods everywhere, and and we we hear some of those from recorded history, but we know that everybody worshipped something, right? Especially because you know we just don't know. They didn't know where did the rain come from? How did the sun come up? Where does it go? How does the how is there water when there's none? You know all of these things nobody knew. So they worshipped something somewhere somehow. And but here was the thing about those gods and about the Egyptian gods. They were regional gods. That means if you traveled a distance, those gods did not go with you and they had no jurisdiction over where you traveled to. Now, imagine this God comes, meets Moses in Midian out of Canaan, but has traveled with Abraham, so to speak meets Moses on the, on the mountain in Midian in the burning bush. So all of a sudden we're getting this impression, God is not regional. And then God comes with Moses into Egypt, and now all of a sudden Moses says, I don't know your God. That's because they didn't have traveling gods. God didn't, they, they had their own gods. You, you leave your gods at your house and you come and you worship our gods now because they're the ones in charge of this land or whatever. But this Moses is saying, no, God is in charge of your land too. And Pharaoh says, there's no way that's true. So I don't know your God. I don't even know anything about your God. Well, he was soon to find out. So we, we learn that God is not a regional God, but God is a God of all creation. So let me talk a little bit about numerology. So why 10 plagues? Is there a significance to the number 10 in Exodus tradition? So consider how it's used in the priestly creation story. remember all of those different strands of storytelling from the priestly to the Yawist and all this stuff? The priestly uh, creation story, the number of plagues in Exodus it directly responds to the 10 divine utterances of God. God says 10 times, and God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be teams of swarming. God said, let there, 10 times, in correlation to and in parallel of the 10 plagues. In the Bible, the number 10 is used 242 times. And the designation 10th is used 80 times. 10 is also viewed as a complete and perfect number, and this is very important to understand in biblical tradition, as is the number 3, the number 7, and the number 12. So 3, 7, 12, and 10 are considered perfect and complete numbers. Now that will help you make sense when you come to a, you know when you come to certain biblical traditions and it says for example how many times are you supposed to forgive someone? Seven, right? The Bible says uh, they say to Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? And he says, seven times seven. Right? Does that mean we're only supposed to give 49 times? No, it means complete and perfect, you are to forgive them until they are completely and perfectly forgiven. So when we have, we have the 12 tribes, right? We have 12 disciples. We have all of these number 12 and the number three with the perfect Trinity, with the three days that Jesus is in the in the tomb, with the three days of darkness. And on it goes, what they're saying by their numerology is not a literal number. It's saying until it was completely and perfectly concluded. So that helps to make sense of that. How many commandments are there? 10. We know there's 622, but Moses only came down with 10, so there's 10. How much is a tithe of an earnings? 10%. The Passover lamb was selected on the 10th day of the first month. The 10th day of the 7th month is the holy day known as the day of atonement. And like I said, Genesis one, the phrase God said is used 10 times. So there's that little piece. Now, the reason this is important to understand is because this creates an understanding for us of the allegorical and metaphorical nature of the plague story. Now, when I say that, I'm not saying that you can't believe it's literally true at all, it would be fine. I'm also saying that if you don't want to take it literally, that's fine too, because you will come to the same conclusions. And the underlying truth of what these plagues move us towards is really the point. And what these plagues move us towards is the Hebrew people becoming the people that God wanted them to be and, and. and they were being stymied and held captive, and God's mission was being uh, um, uh, ransomed and kidnapped and held captive in Egypt. So whether you believe of them literally or whether you believe of them as metaphorically, we come to the same conclusions. So in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, I wanna talk to you just for a second about the curse list. In Deuteronomy and Leviticus, we see what's called a curse list in which the Lord tells the Israelites what will happen to them if they do not obey the Lord's laws and commandments, if they break the covenant. And this is what they'll suffer. According to Leviticus, they will suffer terror, consumption, fever, crop failure, defeat at the hands of their enemies, unnecessary fear, wild beasts will consume their children and cattle, they will die by the sword, they will be so hungry that they eat the flesh of their children, and in the end, they'll go into exile. Okay, if we could tell you that, if we could say that's what's gonna to happen to you if you don't pledge, we would be doing so well. Wouldn't we? Wouldn't we just solve all of our budgetary problems? Similarly, in the augmented list of curses in Deuteronomy, it adds on to that and says, you'll also suffer confusion, consumption, inflammation, madness, blindness, social chaos, and military defeat. Now, okay, what is that all about? These maledictions and curse lists of Leviticus and Deuteronomy are part of a stock of traditional curses employed during the biblical period in a geographical uh, area extending from, from Israel to ancient Mesopotamia. And so they were part of something that was not just with the with the Jewish people. So later on in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, they're adopting what was a a kind of a curse list for everybody with their own gods. This is what's, it's not just what Yahweh's gonna do to you, it's what all these other gods are gonna do to you too, if you break your promises. So they're attested to in the Torah but by the prophets, and they're also appear in the curse sections of contemporaneous ancient Near Eastern treaties. And what this was a, a way of doing It it was a theology about God that had to then be responded to much later on. So the theology about God was they took every possible terrible thing that could happen to a human being. And most of them did happen at some point to somebody. And they said, if these things happen to you, it's because why? Yeah, because you did something wrong. So if anything bad happens to you, if you have a, if if you have a skin problem, if you if you uh, are bald, and which it later on says about that, don't tell your husbands. So if you if you have this, if you have that, if anything is goes wrong, and if you if you get overcome by enemies and they're sent off, it says God is punishing you. That's the theology. So when we come up to the book of Job, Job has to answer that question because they have been worshiping God. They are defeated by the Babylonians. They are dispensed throughout the land and torn apart. They're no longer a people. It's called the great diaspora. And and, and, And the question that is coming out of all that place is, why do bad things happen to good people? And that could be the name of the book of Job. Why do bad things happen to good people? And before it was always because you were bad. And you see the people in Job are saying, you must have done something wrong. You've got to admit it. I haven't done anything wrong. You must have, you must have. So we hear this dialogue until finally, I mean, God just says, look, you know, he didn't do anything wrong. And it, and it puts it in the narrative of this game that is a little quirky, uh, that wry humor of the Torah of, of, uh of how God operates. But the basic question and the basic theology that came out of that was bad things happen to good people and bad people. And good things happen to good people and to bad people. Things happen and it has and it and it was able to relieve them from that feeling that they needed to punish people because it was obvious that they were being punished. So it was an answer to that. But anyway, this is what was happening. And there's some overlap between these curses and the plagues, and there's only about three of them that overlap. We have the Dever, which is pestilence, meaning epidemic, right? And it occurs in the Egyptian plagues and in the curse list of of the Leviticus. Boils occur in the list of Deuteronomy. And a locust-like plague is mentioned in Deuteronomy 28, 42. But those are really the only three. But the plagues that are visited on the Egyptians are quite different from the plagues from the curse list. So if we're gonna look at how how do these plagues respond to the Egyptian gods that were in place at that time. Now think about this, I gave you a list of how they correspond, they're not in order because that's not how it works, but you can see how each and every plague kind of has as its uh, uh, opposing partner a particular set of Egyptian gods that are supposed to be protecting and supposed to be uh, providing safety for that very thing that the plague is destroying. And they can be interpreted as a series of attacks against the Egyptian pantheon of gods. In fact, in Numbers 33, 4, we're told that the Egyptians buried those who died by the 10th plague, by which plague the Lord executed judgments against their gods. So in Numbers, it's interpreting that the plagues were in response to the gods of Egypt, and God was trying to liberate the Egyptians from worshiping gods that could not deliver. And they simply kept making sacrifices and accusing each other of wrongdoing and whatever, and these these gods could not deliver what what they were supposed to be protecting. So a lot of the Egyptian plagues mentioned in Exodus in the Bible have some correlation to an Egyptian god or goddess. For example, Hecate. Hecate was the goddess of birth and resurrection. And Hecate was uh, in the form of a woman with a frog's head. So we have a direct correlation to when the frogs go amok and when uh, and in direct uh, correlation and kind of poking fun at that god particularly. Hathor is a cow, and we know that in particularly in the plagues, the domestic animals are attacked, especially those that were used for food and such. And and Hathor was a protector, protector of those domestic animals. So we, uh, if we kind of look through it, we can see the Nile turned to blood. They had a, a guardian of the Nile. They had a spirit of the Nile. And then they had a Nile was the bloodstream of one of the goddess, gods. And the frogs, the gnats and the flies were, they were gods. Uh, They had a God that was supposed to be the God of resurrection and the God, that goddess that protected all of that. We had the plague on cattle. So we had Ahathor, like I just mentioned, and Apis, the bull of God, and Neneas, the sacred bull of Heliopolis. Then we had boils. And so we had Hemotep, who was the God of medicine, we had hail, which, and we had the sky goddess. We had the goddess of life. We had the protector of crops. And then we had the locust, and we have Isis, goddess of life. And Seth, once again, is the protector of crops. And in the dark, when we get to the darker parts, the darkness and the death, here's what's happening. So you can see when the plagues came and these gods were unable to be a force were unable to respond to the force of God, then what started happening with their own belief system in their own gods? Now, they may not have stopped believing in those gods, but they started believing in what? The power of the Hebrew God. The power of the Hebrew God appeared to be more powerful than their gods. Their gods could not uh, could not uh, respond to what was happening. So, so we have Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the, believed by the people and by himself to be the incarnation of Ra or Re, which was the ultimate god, the big god. And then there were a lot of little sun gods because Ra was the sun, and they worshipped the sun. So, he wasn't just a, a person who worshiped God or a king. He was a person who believed himself to be the incarnation of Ra. So, when the darkness came, you can understand, Ra was not able to overcome the darkness. And when the firstborn is killed and these uh, plagues begin to affect the Pharaoh himself, this God could not protect his own child. So what starts happening in the mind of of the people about their God, king? You can only imagine. So what ignited the faith of the Israelites? Wasn't their physical redemption from Egypt, but it's the mighty act with which the Lord came to them, came to them in ways that they would understand because they understood. Remember, magic was their number one religion. That was the basis of their religion. It was, that's what they believed in. And so they they were able to come with this magic, so to speak, but their magicians could only simulate two or three of the plagues. And then they became victims of the plagues themselves. So what was there about the plagues that triggered Israel's response to in faith and the answer has to do with their invoking the image of god as creator of all things so there's a biblical scholar by the name of terence freedom and and he sees creation as the fundamental backdrop uh, of the plagues i love i love this I have studied this for years and years, and I continuously am just amazed. And I just, it takes my breath away when I read about the creation and the plagues as being the story of decreation. It's so incredibly brilliant of a narrative for us to understand what God needed and had to do in order to move his agenda forward. It's the, The conflict between the Lord and Pharaoh comes from the fact that Pharaoh's sin is anti-creation. Now, we were were talking about how God created, and he said, "Go go forth and multiply and fill the earth, right? So what did Pharaoh do? Not this Pharaoh, but a Pharaoh way back when Moses was a baby. What did Pharaoh do for the children? Yes, he killed the newborn, all the male newborns, except for the ones that Shipra and Pua, the midwives, could save. But he had all of them killed. And he stopped their progeny. They could no longer, you know, they were no longer going to grow up and have children of their own. He stopped that. And so that was an act of anti creation. God said, Go forth and multiply. He said, He he would kill all of them and stop the bloodlines. This is Pharaoh's attempt to curb Israel's growth. And it goes against God's creational purposes. And the Lord responds to judge Egypt by subverting creation to a, now get this, the creation that is to a pre-creation state. That's what it ends up being at the end of the plagues. It's pre-creation. And what do we have in pre-creation? We'll talk about it, that in just a moment. It's possible because as the creator, only the creator can undo the creation. And it's the sin of, of a, it's the evil intent of humanity to stop the progress of God that leads to this de-creation. You know, as a comedian years ago, I can remember, uh, it just came to me when I was reading this, um, where he talks about where he's, he has his 13-year-old son standing in front of him, and this 13-year-old is being, you know, 13 years old, he's being kind of a smart aleck and telling the dad what he can do and what he can't do and all this stuff. And, and the comedian said, and I told him, I brought you into the world and I can take you out. <laughs> okay, I, that's how I feel about this. You know, I feel like God is saying, I created this, and I can uncreate this. And only God can actually say that. So, um, so we have this undoing of creation. And so as we walk through the plagues, I would like to introduce you to that undoing. And then we'll also kind of touch on some of the uh, questions that you might have about certain things like the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and the plundering of Egypt, that might've been a question for you uh, as you were looking through it. So we start with plague one and we start with blood. So to to initiate the plague of blood, we're told that Aaron is supposed to take the staff and hold it over all of Egypt's bodies of water or gatherings of water. And it's important to understand that in these plagues, when they talk about an action that's taken, This is very important. They use the exact Hebrew word that's used in Genesis to talk about creation. And that's really something because, you know, for us, there's a whole lot of words that can mean one thing, right? I mean, a whole bunch of words we could use. I can't think of one right now, but there's a bunch of them. So for them to use the exact, the exact word to describe the undoing is very significant and very uh, focused. So the Hebrew word here is, is used. God called the dry land earth and the gatherings of waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. In contrast to that creation, the primeval waters are not altered by the plague. The first plague demonstrates that God is able to change the very nature of things. Because in the Genesis account, the water is there. And God calls the water together. In this account, the water is there and God turns it into blood. Not just to look like blood, but turns it into blood. So he demonstrates he's able to change the very nature. And then we have the frogs, the lice, and the gnats. And we look at those as a kind of a triad. And at that point, I would have been out of there. This is not something that it would be tolerable. And the frogs are associated with the water, the lice with the earth, and the flies with the air. And each of these elements are part of the creation story as well. We have the the water, the earth, and the air and the frogs emerged from the rivers and you know the rivers were now blood and frogs need water so they all emerged from there and made their way into the homes and houses they relocated into a place that was unnatural for them to be and when god refers to uh, in genesis 1 let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures both genesis and exodus use the same root word And if if you understand it against the background of Genesis in Exodus, the um, frogs usually occupy this outdoor niche, and now they're indoors and in the homes. So what is happening is the animals and the created creatures are starting to act in a way that is incongruent with the way they were created. They are not acting like frogs. That's what they're saying. And similarly, lice come forth from the clumped earth, and the description of lice corresponds to that of crawling creatures that come forth from the earth in Genesis 1. And, and lice are particularly discomfort, uh, discomfortable for the Egyptians. If you notice a lo- in a lot of Egyptian tomb paintings, they shaved all their body hair. And that wasn't a look. It wasn't like, a. Eh. It was more like, it was more like, We have lice and bugs and we don't want lice and bugs. So they shaved all, you know, everything. And so it was totally, it was kind of really gross for them. But this is another piece of this wry humor that the Torah talks about. Uh, uh, The Torah in the Midrash, let let me say about the Midrash again. The Midrash is commentary made by scholars and theologians since the time of Moses. So it's not just like new commentaries. It's like this incredible compilation across thousands of years of wisdom and insight into these writings. So one of the things that they say is that the reason they included lice and gnats is because God wanted to, to kind of poke fun at them and say, yeah, I'm a God who can do all things down to the tiniest, most small, infinitesimal creature. I rule over even that. So that was part of that humor. So a swarm of insects and flies in plague four. In Genesis, God orders that flying creatures multiply in the land. And in Egypt, the flies not only multiply, but they fill the land. And if you've ever been in a place that had a lot of flies, imagine if it was just like to the point of epidemic and pandemic and uh, all of that. And after the plague, the situation in Egypt is a complete reversal of the anticipated by the divine blessing to humanity in Genesis 128, where God tells people, rule the fish of the sea, the winged creatures of the heavens, and all living creatures which creep on the earth. That was their mandate to do as humans. So in Egypt, these creatures are totally out of control. No longer does is is are these creatures under the control of humans, but they are controlling the humans. So everything is completely being deconstructed and decreated. So we have plague five, the pestilence, the plague of pestilence, which affects animals. And this is the first time we see the plagues, which have so far just been an annoyance, so to speak, except for the Nile river being blood, because I think that was critical but they have been annoyance an annoyance. But here we see a direct attack by the plagues on a living creature. And that is in plague. Uh, at, so you can see the plagues are ramping up. You can see they start off a little bit benign and they begin to build in their intensity. And the domestic animals that were under uh, humans' dominion were taken away from the Egyptians. And that which was first created by the first people was first removed from the Egyptians by the first plague directly, specifically against created things. Now, if they've lost all their fish and all of the cro- those things that you can eat in the uh, rivers and they've lost all their domestic animals, what is, going to, what is happening to them? Yeah, they're gonna start starving. So this is, and, and also just keep in mind that when we read it like this, we read it in, in these five chapters, Just like when God created the world in seven days. God could have created the world in seven days. It would have been super easy for God. God also could have taken millennium upon millennium upon millennium with science and nature, which God is the God of, to create an evolutionary pattern and and matter. So these plagues may not have happened like uh, day one, day two, day three, day four, but had a while to really have their impact. If they happen, um, uh, if they happen literally at all, or they happen in a very different way, so they, um, so it was the first plague. So now they're starting to starve. They're having trouble finding water, and now we have a God-created um, uh, boils, sent boils as a plague, and now we're down to the human beings. God created human beings and pronounced them good. But any kind of affliction, any kind of lesion, as I said before, was considered unclean and not good. So by sending the boils and, the, and what was to come, God is deconstructing what is good. This sign affects human beings much more personally and painfully than any other signs. We don't have anything in the scriptures that tell us that the Pharaoh was not affected by it or that his magicians were not affected by it. We, in fact, we hear from all the servants later on, oh my goodness, let the people go. We're dying from all this stuff. And so um, so we have this quite incredible experience of, everyone being affected by it except for the Hebrew people. So uh, Moses and Aaron are instructed to take handfuls of ash and to toss it into the air. And in this miraculous way, when the ash lands on people, the boils erupt. And so we have a boils erupting on uh, people all over the place. So in this plague, as in the previous, human actions cause misery on God's creation which they have been appointed stewards and in interconnectedness and order of things. And you might see a similar thing happening now in the face of a sinful actions of humanity, where our creation is being deconstructed as well by introducing unnat- an unnatural um, and unsustainable lifestyles and resources that we use. The magicians now enter the scene for the last time. Do you remember the magicians at the very beginning? They threw out their staffs and it became a bunch of snakes and then Aaron threw out his and it ate all those snakes up. And then they did the blood, uh, water turned into blood. Well, now they're they're, they're no longer active. They can't do anything in the face of what's happening. So they can no longer stand alongside Moses, tit for tat. You know, you do this and we do that. They just can't do it anymore. So now they be, they're portrayed in the fact that this is the last uh, that this is a culmination and that Moses is growing into the Moses that God wanted him to be. If you remember, Moses said, there's no way I can do that. Okay, Aaron. So Aaron's doing this stuff. Now, all of a sudden, as the plagues get grow in intensity, Aaron takes a step back and Moses takes a step forward. And now Moses becomes the central figure standing by himself in the face of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is becoming by himself as well because the people are crying out to him to help them. Where is he, their God? And the servants are begging him to change his mind and let the people go. And we'll talk about the hardening of the heart in a few minutes. This So, so it betrayed that the fact is, it's the last mention of Aaron in this setting and he stands alone. And now for the first time, we hear, and this particular plague, the first five plagues we heard, Pharaoh hardened his heart. It was Pharaoh hardening his own heart. In plague six and and to come, we hear now and then, although it's interspersed with a Pharaoh hardening his heart, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And there's a part of you, I'm sure there's a part of you, as it was a part of me, as I was studying this years ago, that said, but that's mean. That's just not right. What if Pharaoh wanted to change his mind? What if he wanted to be good? What if he wanted to let the people go and God hardened his heart so he couldn't do it? It made no sense to me. There's uh, so many theories out there of what this really means, of what this is about. And um, there's a theory that God uh, needed to demonstrate once and for all that he was God. So, so when Pharaoh was weakening, God helped him along because he had a predisposition for it. There's another theory. Uh, anyway, there's a million theories, but the theory that always made sense to me that I, that I have continued to work with over the years is that the Deuteronomists, who were the people, you know, 1,000 years later, looking back into these stories, who are then interpreting the stories and writing them together, Quite often, when they looked back into a battle, for example, and they see that the Hebrews or the tribes lost a battle, they would write into that, so God was not with them. So they're looking back into history and identifying a God presence or a God not present by what happened rather than in the moment. Does that, do you see what I'm saying? And so in this sense, what a lot of the Midrash believes is that the Deuteronomists were looking back and saying, we don't understand how anyone possibly could not bend and let the people go unless God intervened and had something to do with it. So that is one of the midrash kind of understandings of why it says God hardened his heart. Another theory is that what it meant was that the actions of God made his heart hard because he was deliberately saying, I am God, you're not God. So when God proved to be God's self, he says, no, I am God, you're not God. That's not, I know that's not a terribly satisfying uh, answer or response to that, but it's what over the years people have come to say because it's a little bit mysterious. We don't quite understand it because we're kind of a people who want things to be fair, right? And we also believe terribly in our free will, and we believe very much that God uh, wants free will for us. So this sometimes doesn't make sense to us. So what we see now is the seventh plague of thunder and hail. And thunder and hail is the one that goes the longest and because it it has the longest narrative. And it's because it's a new level of intensity for the struggle with um, Pharaoh. And much of the length is due to extraordinary detail that's told regarding the natural phenomena and their effects on Egypt and the occurrence of a weather-related phenomenon, all of a sudden, now we're starting to see the land itself is being destroyed bit by bit. The animals are gone. The water is gone. There's lightning and hail and locusts and all of these things are visiting. And now the vegetation is being in a way. What is going to happen and the people are crying out and saying to Pharaoh, let them go. Let the people go. And he still says, okay, you men can go, but you can't go. No, that's not going to work. And so Moses says, there's one way that we're leaving here, and we're all leaving together. And so Pharaoh doesn't go for that. So the uh, so the eighth plague then comes into being. And the eighth plague, again, the visiting locusts, describes this way of kind of now is just poking at, at um, Pharaoh and saying, we're gonna take everything. You're gonna, you're gonna lose everything if you don't let these people go. It's obvious that you're in a losing situation here. By plague nine, there's no turning back. It's a done deal because Pharaoh's heart has hardened to the point that he can no longer see even or hear the suffering of his people if he ever did. So the, there's a concession theme that's introduced before these continuing plagues, and those concession are like, okay, your men can go, okay, your men and women can go, but your livestock have to stay. And so, and Moses comes back, and they had this, they had this incredible exchange, and the locusts totally just, just decimate any leftover uh, vegetation, and this totally reverses this. Uh, Genesis 1.12, where it says, the land brought forth vegetation, seed bearing fruit with seed in it, and it was abundant. So all of a sudden, by contrast, in Exodus, we're told that nothing green was left. Of tree or grass of the field in all the land of Egypt, nothing is left. We go back to the beginning, where the only thing is left is rubble and garbage and soon-to-be bodies. So we had the the uh, uh, ninth plague, and the 10th plague is not something that we'll talk up too much about today because that's for next week. But the ninth plague isn't an ordinary darkness, no. It's a darkness that you can eat. It's so thick. It's a darkness where you're disoriented, where you can't see your hand in front of your face, where you feel an oppression. And also it's very important to understand that this language of darkness is used later on in Joel, in Zephaniah, in Isaiah, as a um, allegory or a metaphor for God's judgment. So this actual act of the darkness coming over the earth is God's judgment. And it's also extremely important because who was the main God for the Egyptians? And who was and who was Pharaoh? The god God of, was the sun, right? He was Ra, the sun god. So a darkness that comes and takes away the the entire identity of the god that they worshipped. So the Pharaoh, what, there's this loss and sense of who he is, what he has control over, and who was. Um, in control of history at that time. And it's an ominous sign for Pharaoh. And so, uh, so we have the darkness of chaos is a pre-creation state of affairs. And if you look at pre-creation, what was there before things were created? Nothing, nothing. And God has taken one by one by one by one in 10 ways of it is good, it is good, is it away? way? And so they are in a state of pre-creation. And so uh, Pharaoh once more hardens his heart when Moses comes and says, this is your last, this is it. And Pharaoh's, Pharaoh then gets angry with Moses and he says, Get out of my sight. I don't want to ever see you again. And guess what Moses says? You won't. That was Moses' last kind of words to Pharaoh. You're not going to see me again. So there will be no more opportunities for Pharaoh to let Israel go, except on the far side of this great disaster. And Pharaoh stands completely alone with his servants begging him to let the Hebrews go and his people providing for their departure. And the warning is complete and inevitable. As we close this out, I just wanna say one, one last word, it'd be very quick, uh, about the way the Egyptians gave all their jewelry and their gold and all of that stuff to the Hebrew people. Now, you could look at it that in a couple of different ways. One, you could say they were good neighbors. They wanted you know, they, they wanted their neighbors who they had grown up and lived with to be able to leave with something. You could also see they wanted them to go, you know. Okay, here's my crown jewels. Take it and go. Now, the thing is, where they were going, this all this jewelry and stuff was not going to do much good, but one of the first things they did with it was quite remarkable in that they turned their eyes away from God and created a golden calf. That's later on. So what is with the jewelry stuff? It's not about wealth. It's not about... Um, funding their trip. What it says in the the Midrash says that every time the Jews celebrate Passover now, it is not to remember so much their enslavement. This is what what, uh, it says. It is to remember the suffering of the Egyptians. It is to soften their heart for their oppressors and for their enemy, so in God's uh, divine under, you know understanding of human nature, if you were setting out on a trip and somebody handed you fifty thousand dollars, and they you weren't you weren't very friendly with them before, wouldn't you think well of them? You might soften your heart towards them, and so while God provides for them in manna and all of that. The reason for all these jewels and stuff, the Midrash says, is because God is softening the heart of the Hebrews for the Egyptians so that in remembering them, they will remember them with compassion for their suffering. So, anyway, that's the nine plagues. Isn't it exciting? And next week, I just can't believe we did five chapters. And next week, we're only going to do one. What will we do with our time? I don't know, but there'll be plenty to do. But anyway, thank you for the extra few minutes. And God bless each and every one of you. And I pray that if you are being held captive in your own Egypt, in your own mind, that you'll know that God is the God of history. God is the God of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Your God that you can rely on. Amen.